the Lord of life who came as a baby comes and greets us right here this morning. The God who is with us says grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ through the mighty and present work of God's Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Welcome to LaGrave Church on this cold and bright second Sunday of Advent. It is a gift that we don't take for granted to be in each other's company and in the Lord's presence to worship Him. Welcome, whether this is your first, first Sunday or you've been a lifetime member of LaGrave, and whether you're worshiping online or here in the sanctuary, we're thankful that you have taken time to belong to this community for this time and this place to worship God together. If you are visiting and you'd like to know more about our church, there's a special time of coffee and conversation just for you following this service out through the narthex down the hall and to the left in the parlor. And there's also an opportunity for everyone to join for coffee and conversation in the multi-purpose room or for the education hour at 10 o'clock. For children, uh, grades kindergarten through 12th grade, there are classes, and there is a class for adults downstairs. We have Dr. Jeff Wyma coming for Growing You this morning, uh, speaking about the sermons to the churches of Revelation. So we hope that you might consider joining downstairs for that this morning as well. Today we continue our journey toward Jesus' coming, and we're marking time through the lighting of our Advent wreath. So I'd like to invite the Scop family to come forward to lead us in our reading and in that lighting. The Lord will give you a sign. Look. Look. The young woman is with child, and she'll bear a son, and she'll name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Those before us in life and faith watched and prayed, and God answered. He did awesome deeds his people did not expect, so that everyone might honor him. We light this candle to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God into the world. Our souls are ready for Lord. Lord. Our souls are ready for life. Let's join our hearts in our prayer of confession, saying together, we live our days before your face, Lord, yet we admit that your purposes and actions are sometimes a mystery to us. We misunderstand your priorities and fail to appreciate your timing. Please make us new. Open our eyes to see evidence of your reign in this world. Quicken our hearts to perceive your spirit in our lives. You've shown us yourself in Jesus and have promised that he will come back for us. In his word, we place our hope. 
In Jesus' name, amen. People of God, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem his people from all of our sins. Thanks be to God. Children, it's time for a short children's sermon. Come on forward and have a seat around me, and I'll share some stuff with you again today. Hello. All right. You look excited to be here. Oh, there's more of you than I thought coming in from the highways and the byways. 
Some of you look like you're positioning yourselves to get out the door first. Am I right about that? Yeah, okay. I've seen that, I've seen that in my time. I have seen that. Okay, we still got more coming. Come on down, guys. All right. So it's communion today, which means I always, I don't talk very long when we have communion Sundays, and you can tell by the way the table is set. And I don't know if I've ever told you this before, but sometimes I don't think of the table of the Lord's Supper as just as a table. I think of it as a time machine. This is a time machine. It goes backwards and forwards in time. And you think I'm, you know, what is Pastor Yonker talking about? Well, let me try to explain. When we sit at this table and we have communion later, we will go back in time. We will think back in time. It'll be like we're at there with Jesus and the disciples when he had that first meal called the Lord's Supper. He had the Passover meal right on the day before he was crucified. So we'll go right back in time and remember that really sad day when Jesus gave up his life and suffered so to take away our sin. So that's us going back in time. But when we eat this meal, we also go forward in time because in the Bible, it says that in the new creation, in heaven, when our life is over, we will be with Jesus. And one of the things it says that we will do with Jesus is that we will eat a feast with him that will be like a wedding banquet. And all the people we know will be there and it will be wonderful. So it's like our minds go forward in time to that time when we will be with Jesus. And so we, and, and that memory, when we think back, it makes us feel a little bit sad for what Jesus had to do for us. But when we think forward, that's a happy memory. That's all happening at this table and we look forward to the day when you all will be able to share the bread and wine and travel with us. Congregation, what is our prayer for these children? And also with you. Go in peace. One update to the prayer concerns listed in your bulletin. We're thankful that Marcia Decker has returned home after being treated for a respiratory infection. Let's go before our Lord together. Light of the world, at just the right time, as promised, you came. Just when this tired world needed hope and life and light. In your eternal wisdom, you had laid the groundwork, aligning nations and kingdoms and families preparing the way, coming into the noise and confusion of your creation, helpless, just as we are. Yet in seven pounds of your humanity, you contained all the fullness of God. And we are amazed. Forgive us when we approach you with too much familiarity or with too much distance. For you are Emmanuel, God with us. All through time, you've tended your creatures. You've listened to the cries of the wronged, the poor, the immigrant. You didn't abandon us when our circumstances seemed impossible, but instead whispered to us, be patient, 
I am making everything new. You hear creation's groaning and you, t- you tell us as you told your people long ago, hold on, I am coming soon. Father, we keep learning all through this life to trust. And so we wait for you. Some of us in patient expectation, some in desperation. We pray for places and people on this planet in desperate circumstances. Have mercy on those in Ethiopia and Ukraine whose lives are upended by war. Have mercy on those threatened by homelessness or unemployment. Have mercy on those facing unrelenting family conflict or progressive illness. We pray for the people of our church who need you, Spirit, to carry them. Some of our deepest needs are the ones we keep quiet. So in the stillness, hear the cries of our hearts for those we love. This day, we also thank you for the gifts of this life, for the lifetime of faith and the milestone birthday that is coming for Nella Groff. Help her to know your joy in her as she remembers her years as your daughter. Bring healing and strength to those who are recovering from surgeries or hospital stays for Dorothy Bonzo, Marsha Decker, and Ron Day. Be a very present source of strength for Marin DeYoung and for Andrew and Hillary, her parents, as they anticipate surgery for Marin on Tuesday. Bring good care for her, medical insight and compassion to those who treat her, and give her parents what they need each day. Strengthen Carol Heilman as she anticipates hip replacement surgery this week. May that surgery be uncomplicated and the healing be straightforward. Bring your healing and sustaining grace also to those who are undergoing cancer treatment. We say thank you for a good post-surgical report for Renee Kuyper. Strengthen her as she waits for what is next. Strengthen George Booth as he has received a diagnosis and begins cancer treatment for prostate cancer. Strengthen Nick Obuhanik and Julie Pierce as they continue with their journeys through cancer treatment. Many of us, Lord, grieve the loss of people we love, whether we're observing the anniversary of a death or whether the loss is fresh. So comfort Jim Bontice and his family in the death of Eleanor. Whisper your nearness to Jim as he continues in hospice care. Assure the family and friends of Harvey Westfeld that you're close. Encourage the hearts of George and Janice Dornbos Zant and the sudden passing of George's brother, Ramsey and uphold Ken and Dawn Erfmeyer in the passing away of Ken's mother, Trudy. Comfort and whisper your nearness to Catherine Dozema and Bill Oltoff. Assure them that you are near, that you see them, and that you are walking with them all the way home. And now, Lord, as we continue to prepare our hearts to welcome you, we thank you for bringing us to a feast for our souls, for the food from your word and the food from your table, Thank you for the grace you make edible for us in communion. Thank you for welcoming us in 
sitting us down and filling and refreshing us with yourself. Thank you for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Gospel of Luke, Luke 21. I will read from verse 5 through verse 36. That's a long reading, and I think you will agree when I'm finished it, it is also a difficult reading, which is a sort of in keeping with the theme of our sermon series for Advent. It's an apocalyptic Advent. So all the texts and all the, the sermons 
um, this year, and this is a, a, a fairly common Advent theme, we'll be not looking forward simply to the first coming of Jesus as he came at Bethlehem, but looking forward to the second coming of Jesus as we anticipate it. And, and this text is very much in, in that vein. It's not a text um, that you would read in a cozy situation. It, at Christmas Eve, by the fire, this would not be the sort of text that you would read at all. But it is a text that has been read during the season of Advent for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Because in these words, Jesus is teaching us how to interpret, how to stand in the midst of our trials, in the midst of the crises of our life. And in that sense, it's a true apocalyptic text. If you, apocalyptic literature, is, there's a sort of a definition of what it is. The words that Jesus speaks here are apocalyptic literature. As Christie said last week, the word apocalypse in Greek means revelation. So an apocalypse is something that reveals. It pulls back the curtain. And all apocalyptic literature, and what Jesus says here is included, is trying to get us to look beneath the surface of our lives, the surface of our crises, the surface of our worries, and to see the deeper story, the spiritual story that is always there underneath the surface of events. So let me read, and let's hear Jesus as he tries to get the disciples to look beneath the surface of the events of their life. Listen. Some of Jesus' disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus says, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone is left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, watch out that you will not be deceived. For many will come in my name claiming, I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and famines and pestilences in various places, fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. And you'll be brought before kings and governors, all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you'll defend yourselves. For I will give you the words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair from your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that the desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city. 
for this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. And how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against the people. They will fall by the sword. They will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. There will be sign in the sun and the moon and the stars. On earth... Nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive as what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly, like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the earth. So be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. So this passage um, starts out innocently enough. Jesus and his disciples are, are walking around Jerusalem, and, and they've only been in Jerusalem a little while. They've, they've just arrived. They've been in Galilee most of the time. Only recently has Jesus come into the city. And the disciples have, have sort of the aspect of wide-eyed tourists. Um, they are small-town boys from Galilee, and now they're in the big city, and, and just like today, when they look around, they're very impressed with the big city sites, and especially the temple, and they're saying, wow, Jesus, check out the temple. That is an amazing place. So they're a little bit like uh, maybe tourists um, from small towns who would go to, say, Times Square today, right? Just looking around, wow. Jesus is not impressed. Jesus throws cold water on their excitement. He says, don't get too attached to this temple because the time is coming when it will be cast down and not one stone will be left on another. This temple will not last. Jesus is speaking prophetically here. He is prophesying. He is prophesying actual events that will soon come upon Jerusalem because less than 40 years after Jesus speaks these words next to the temple, in April of 70 AD, the armies of the Roman Empire will lay siege to Jerusalem. There's been a lot of conflict between the Jews and the Romans. The Romans will be fed up. They will surround the city and they'll put it to siege. People inside the city uh, will be hungry, the times will be dreadful. When Jesus says how dreadful it will be for nursing mothers in those days, he's anticipating how dreadful it will be inside the city when it's under siege, the siege will go on for a while. 
The Romans will tighten the noose. They will rush into the city. They will burn everything, and they will knock the temple to the ground. Just as Jesus said, not one stone will be left on another. In fact, if you go to Israel today and you stand by the Wailing Wall, that ruined temple is the result of what the Romans did in 70 AD. It's exactly what Jesus was prophesying. It is hard to overestimate how traumatic that event would have been for the early church. Because Jerusalem, obviously it was traumatic for Jews, Jerusalem was their city, but for Christians, Jerusalem was their city too, right? That's where the, the Pentecost happened. That's where the early Christians, when they gathered for worship, where did they worship? They worshiped in the temple courts. That was where all the apostles lived. That's where everyone came when you had a major synod and you needed to make a decision, right? Acts 15, when they were deciding what to do with the Gentiles, they all came to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the central city of Christianity at that point, and now it was gone. And this was enormously traumatic, and, and what you need to understand is that it was another trauma in a series of traumas. So from the years 65 AD to 70 AD were really, really bad years for the Christian church. In 66 AD, roundabouts, the apostle Peter was executed, crucified upside down, tradition tells us. And he had been the leader of the church. So that was a devastating blow. About two years later, maybe 68 AD, in Rome, the apostle Paul was beheaded. So in the span of two years, they lost their two most important leaders. I mean, I don't think there's any question. Peter and Paul were the most, two most important leaders in two years. And then two years after that, Jerusalem gets knocked to the ground by the Romans. So it would have been absolutely devastating for the people. The mindset of the church would be, Lord, what is going on? Why are these calamities happening? What are you doing in history? Because this does not seem to be going in the right direction. In this passage, Jesus not only predicts the fall of Jerusalem, he also anticipates the kinds of feelings people will have when Jerusalem falls. He anticipates how traumatic this will be. He knows what's coming. So Jesus gives these people words that will help them stand up in those crisis times. He teaches them the posture he wants them to have when these events happen. And because Jesus isn't just speaking to them, he's always speaking to us too. He teaches us the posture that he wants us to have when the times of crisis come into our life. What is Jesus teaching his disciples here? I want to break this down into three things. First, he tells them two things not to do. We're going to start out with what not to do. And then finally, he says what he thinks our posture should be in these times of crisis. So first, what are we not supposed to do when these crises come upon us? That's described in verses 8 and 9. One of the bad reactions, one of the two bad reactions. Verses 8 and 9, watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not listen to them. In these words, Jesus is warning against too much end time speculation. In these words, Jesus is warning about us getting overheated about anticipating Christ's return being imminent any minute now. Jesus 
is worried about that because he knows that that's exactly what the people in Jerusalem in 70 AD will think. When the destruction of Jerusalem comes, they will be very, very expectant of the end times. How does Jesus know that? Well, he knows that because he's Jesus and he can see things coming. But he also knows that because in his time, in the first century AD, there was a lot of high-end expectation of the end times among the Jews. I don't know if you've heard of the Qumran sect. Have you ever heard the word Qumran? They were an important and very influential sect of Judaism. They're not Christians, they're Jews. They lived just outside of Jerusalem in the desert, near the Dead Sea. In fact, when you hear the Dead Sea Scrolls, most of those were written by the Qumran community. And when you look at those scrolls, what you see is that the people in the Qumran community had a fervent expectation that the end times were upon us, that the Messiah would come any minute. And what they believed was that the Messiah would come and he would start a final battle. And he would rally all the children of the light. They saw themselves as children of the light. And the children of the light would go to battle against the children of the darkness. Who are the children of the darkness? Well, the Romans and all the pagan nations. And there would be a great battle and all the Romans and the pagan nations would be utterly destroyed and Israel would once again be restored to full prominence that she had in the time of David. They thought this was coming very soon. And you can see, not only was it coming soon, it was a very political view. It had to do with the restoration of Israel. And it was militaristic. Now, not everybody in Jerusalem had an end-time expectation like the Qumran sect, but it was very influential. You can sense that because, remember, when people started thinking Jesus was the Messiah, what kind of Messiah did they think he would be? Political, military, was influenced from Qumran. But not everyone had that, that viewpoint exactly, but still, that was in the air. And Jesus knew that when the temple fell, those expectations that this was the end, that the end would near would go to the roof because that is what always happens in times of crisis. In times of crisis, people start saying, this is it. And Jesus also knew that there would be teachers who come along who say, I can read the code, I can read the signs, follow me. Jesus says, do not listen to them. In verse 9, you can hear him explicitly trying to build distance between the fall of Jerusalem and the end times. These things must happen, he says, so Jerusalem must fall, but the end will not come right away. And through the rest of the passage, you heard me when I read it, Jesus describes wave after wave of trauma and crisis and cataclysm that will take place throughout human history. Wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, persecutions. You'll be called before governors. You will have to undergo all these things. There will be wave after wave of difficulty before the end actually comes. So don't get too overheated in your expectations. This is a good word for today. In the Christian church, there is a high level of end time speculation right now. 
And there are lots of teachers who are looking at the signs and saying it's, it's going to happen. It's going to happen right now. And it usually comes from people who say that what we're going through in our times right now are the worst that we've ever seen. That the moral decay is worse, that the violence is worse, that everything is falling apart in a way that we've never seen in history. Be careful with these prophets. First of all, though our times are undeniably dark, right, there are bad things happening right now, bad things that we need to deal with. Undeniably true. It is also undeniably true that there have been worse periods in Christian history and that every single generation and every single century has seen terrible moral depravity and genocide and calamity. And ours is no worse than others. In fact, in some ways, ours is, is not as bad as us. The first century of the church, the moral depravity in the Roman Empire, far worse than anything we're dealing with today. And the pressure on Christians and persecution of Christians, far worse than anything we're dealing with, certainly in this country. And Jesus predicts all these things are coming. These troubles, these persecutions, they're all part of the story, and they all have to happen before I draw things to the close. So don't be too quick to assume that the end is right around the corner. So that's one reaction that Jesus wants us to avoid, getting too caught up in end-time speculation. But Jesus is more concerned with the other extreme. As history goes on, as centuries pass, as it turns out to be longer and longer from the time that Jesus comes until the time he returns again, he says, verse 34, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. Stay on your toes. Be on your guard. Be ready. Be watchful for the coming of Christ. Jesus is concerned about us being overly concerned with end time stuff, but he's more concerned about the opposite problem, that we will not expect his return at all. As one crisis gives way to the next, and as we go through our own personal struggles, not only will we not be thinking about Christ's return, um, we won't think about him doing much of anything in our life at all. The only advents we will think of will be secular. We won't look beneath the surface of things. We won't rely on God's promises. Instead, we will just see history in human terms. Human politics, human economics, human power, human plans, human life, human death. That's what Jesus is really worried about in this passage. Because when all you see is human causes and human power and human plans, it goes two ways. Either you become obsessed with human power and who has it. You become obsessed with human politics because that's what politics is, right? the working of human power, because that's the only agent you have in this world. Or you try to escape. You get lost in drunkenness and dissipation, carousing, escapist behavior. Both these things Jesus warns against. Both these things are present in our world today. 
So Jesus warns against those two extremes. Too much expectation, too little expectation. What would Jesus have us do? How would he have us stand in the middle of these crises and in the middle of dark times like ours? What's the spiritual posture? Jesus calls us to look beneath the surface of these events and see that what looks like catastrophe, what looks like crisis, what is catastrophe, what is crisis, just below the surface of that, God is completely and utterly in control. The things that feel like waves of the sea that are crashing over us, in those things, God is completely and utterly in control. In fact, these things have been predicted. Verse 9, these things must take place. Verse 22, these things are a fulfillment of all that has been written. What feels like a world spinning out of control is never out of control in the hands of a sovereign God, and he is working in the middle of it to bring all things to his good purposes. That's what Jesus wants us to see. Jesus doesn't tell us why these chaotic things and these traumas have to come into our life, nor does he tell us why there's so many of them and why they take so long. He does not explain why it has taken him 2,000 years of these cycles of violence before he comes again. If only he had done that, he doesn't. What he does give us is that beneath the surface of these things, I am working. Verse 28 is the verse where I really think you hear Jesus calling us to look beneath the surface. When these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads, because you know that your redemption is drawing near. Terrible events do not mean that God is absent. In fact, sometimes terrible events, if you stand up and you look in the middle of a terrible event, you will see that God is not actually far away. In fact, he is near. A couple of examples. A young woman and her husband, homeless, are forced to give birth to their baby in a stable. They have no place to stay. It's their first child. In unimaginable conditions, in the dark, in the cold, she gives birth to this child. She wraps it against the cold and lays it in a manger and leans on her husband. What does that event look like from the surface? Catastrophe. A good man, an innocent man, hangs on a cross. He's being tortured. He's crying out in pain. The men who nailed him there are laughing at him. His friends have all abandoned him. He cries out in abandonment as he dies. What does that event look like from the surface? Calamity. Look deeper, and you know that just beneath the surface, the redemption is drawing near. God is active, and he's pouring out his grace and working for salvation in those things that look like catastrophe. So when you see these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, for you know that your redemption is drawing near. And once you're able to do that, once we're able to be people who can look beneath the surface of the events and see the sovereign purposes of God, and not necessarily explain them, but trust them, then we're able to be people who are calm and graceful presences in this world. And that's the other thing Jesus is calling for here. 
When you hear about wars and uprisings, don't be frightened. If you get called before governors and kings and powers, don't worry. I'll give you the words to say. I'll give you the grace. Be calm, be gracious, stand up, lift up your heads. On this, the second Sunday of Advent, I promise you that God is working beneath the surface of history. And I promise you that the God who came in weakness and wrapped in bands of cloth at Bethlehem will come again with a crown on his head and he will bring history to the close and he will wipe away every tear and make every crooked thing straight. And I pray that as you go through your weeks, you will see that truth beneath the surface of your calamities. Because when you do, you will be able to stand up. When I think of an everyday example of what that looks like for regular people like us, how this kind of posture would look in our lives, my mind um, keeps going to a story that I told at Harv Westfeld's funeral just this week. Um, Harv died only 10 days ago. Uh, Rosie died about two years before him. Harv and Rosie, longtime members, many of you know him, sat right over there. Harv was just a regular guy, lived in Allendale. The whole family was in Allendale. He was a UPS driver. Um, and in 1975, their family was rocked by a calamity. Two days before Christmas, Rosie's mother suddenly died. She was relatively young. One night she was there. The next morning, she was gone. And so in the face of that loss, the whole family gathered at Harv and Rosie's house uh, to just process together. And they were crying, and they were holding each other, and they were hugging. And the only person who didn't know what had happened was Harv, because as I said, he was a UPS driver. It was two days before Christmas, and he was out. And, and there were no cell phones in that day. He could, you couldn't get a hold of him. So they were all crying and waiting for Harv to come back. And it wasn't until 8 o'clock that he finally rolled in the door. And it fell to his 16-year-old son, Tom, to tell Dad. And Tom said, Dad, Grandma Gemmon's gone. She died. And Harv's first reaction was, the first thing out of Harv's mouth was, praise Jesus. Now that doesn't mean he wasn't devastated by the loss of his mother-in-law whom he loved. That doesn't mean he didn't feel sadness. It doesn't mean he didn't feel the catastrophe of the thing. But in that moment, he looked beneath the surface of it. He saw beneath the surface of the chaos to the workings of God's grace. Grandma was with Jesus. Her tears were wiped away. Her joy was complete. All those years of listening to Advent sermons and praying had given him an apocalyptic vision that worked in his kitchen and blessed his family. May God give us the same sight as we face our calamities. Amen. Lord, you know um, the trials that we're enduring. You know the trials that we see when we look out into our culture. You know the trials that we experience on a very personal level in our families. Thank you, Lord for this, this hard passage which helps us to see that you are working for good in the middle of all these things. Father, we rest on that. 
We put our hopes in you and we ask that you would give us and you would make us people of apocalyptic sight as we go out into the world. Amen. We now have the privilege of celebrating the Supper of our Lord. Uh, if you're a visitor in our midst and uh, you take communion at your home church, we warmly invite you to share this, this feast with us. Congregation, the Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. With joy, we praise you, gracious God, for you created heaven and earth, made us in your image, and kept covenant with us even when we fell into sin. We give you thanks for Jesus Christ, our Lord, who by his life, death, and resurrection opened to us the way of everlasting life. We praise you that Jesus emptied himself of heavenly glory, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and born of the Virgin Mary, so that our human life might be redeemed. We thank you for the hope that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Therefore, we join our voices with all the saints and angels in the whole creation to proclaim the glory of your name. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Lord our God, 
Send your Holy Spirit so that this bread and this cup may be for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we and all your saints be united with Christ and remain faithful in hope and love. Gather your whole church, O Lord, into the glory of your kingdom. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. On the night when he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread. And after he'd given thanks for it, he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
This is the body of Christ, the fruit of the incarnation, the fruit of Christ coming to this earth. Take, eat, remember, and believe that Christ gave his body for the complete forgiveness of all your sins. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you do this, remember me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again.
Take and drink. Remember and believe that the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ was shed for the complete forgiveness of all of our sins.
Receive the blessing of your most high God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all.